by putting yourself out there and taking risk and taking that that jump, win, lose, or draw, you're likely going to have doors that open up after. Okay, we are here today with Will Zell. Will Zell is the founder of Zell Capital, an experienced entrepreneur and investor in startup companies. Prior to Zell Capital, Will was the founding CEO of Nicola Labs, where he led the company from the beginning, raising over 20 million in investor capital and building the company into a high growth phase before successfully handling leadership to his chosen replacement. Prior to Nicola, Will was the founder of two other tech companies and several other small businesses in diversified industries. Will and his wife, Beth, live in Huntsville, Ohio and have three children. Will, it's great to have you on the Gravity Podcast. Thanks, Brett. I'm a big fan of the podcast and I'm very honored to, to be on with you. really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, great. Well, let's hop right in. As you know, our format is to really give the listener an opportunity to hear your full journey. So why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of the early days and where you're from and, and your family dynamics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm born and raised in the Bell Fountain, Ohio area. So just northwest of Columbus by about 45 minutes um, and actually still live uh, here in, in my hometown. So I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit, but have never lived outside of uh, Logan County, Ohio. Um, so I grew up in a, in a pretty big family, actually. I'm the fifth of seven children. Uh, so surrounded by a bunch of sisters or five girls and, and two boys. Um, and grew up in rural Logan County for the first you know, few years of my life. And then we moved into Bell Fountain. Uh, graduated from Bell Fountain High School. And, and I would say the primary reason why I still live in Bell Fountain was a decision I made um, when I was a senior in high school. Uh, which although it wasn't around starting a business, it was the first, I think, real entrepreneurial type decision that I made, uh, which was to run for city council as a, as a senior in high school. So I uh, ran for Bell Fountain City Council, had to be in the city running a campaign. Uh, so I switched from you know going to Columbus and staying on Ohio State's campus for the fall of my freshman year to uh, commuting up to Ohio State Lima. And that decision actually has had a lot of uh, implications and ripple effects and probably the you know, number one reason why I'm still here today. Yeah, it, it's a great story, and uh, I'm tempted to just hop right in and 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 talk about that. But before we do, let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little bit about kind of your earliest, you know, kind of memories. I mean, you obviously, you know, at a very young age to run for a city council position in high school um, says a lot about kind of how you're wired. But I, I want to maybe see what else is there that kind of would be a, a, a similar spark or, or kind of tell me more about what you were like as a kid that, you know, might kind of demonstrate some of that same energy. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I mean, having a, a lot of siblings is is really interesting. And there is another dynamic uh, about my family, which it, I think is somewhat unique. Um, and that's that when I was born, my father was 52 years old. And so we had this really interesting dynamic of a, a bit of a, like a generational gap, if you will. So my first cousins would be old enough to be my uncles, basically, is, is the way that, that it worked out in, in many ways. And so I think that, that had a bit of an impact in terms of like, I don't know if it led to just being a little bit more mature, thinking about the future in, in different ways. But you know, I never really knew my dad when he was in his 30s or 40s by the time. 
I've got really strong memories of my father. He's already in his 60s, right? Uh, and so the influences, you know, of, of your father is someone who is kind of, you know, later on in, in their life. Um, and, and I think it just probably created a little bit of a, a different perspective. But out, outside of that, I mean, I, I was never great at athletics. I played ran cross country, played tennis in high school. I liked sports, but um, I, I was pretty confident that a future as a professional athlete was not uh, in my, my DNA. And I think really what, what I think I gravitated towards mostly early on was the community. So I was involved in a lot of social uh, clubs. So I was president of Key Club, involved in, in student government. Um, so, and, and I do give my parents a lot of, of gratitude and thanks for this. They, from a very early age, uh, taught all, me and all of my siblings about serving the community, about helping out those who are in need. So a lot of you know soup kitchens and and involved in uh, uh, community service activities through the church that we went to. You know, I think there were a lot of seeds planted there around like using your talents and your time to do good and make a positive impact. And I've channeled that now into entrepreneurship, but I think that was like the the heart of thinking about things such as running for city council and being willing to take risks and make a, a decision to, to do those types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I'm curious just to kind of back up a little bit. You, you mentioned you know, the, fa- the fact that your father was older when you were born. And I think I understood you correctly in that you felt like kind of his maybe you know kind of maturity and, and you know, being you know, more seasoned in life kind of maybe sped up the process a bit for you too, that um, because he was later in life, you were doing things earlier in life that maybe you typically do later in life. Is that, is that true? Or maybe you could say a little more about that. Yeah, it's something that, it's something honestly that I think a lot about. Um, so my, my father passed away back in, in 2012. Um, so I can't you know, have these deep conversations with him, him now, but it is something that, that I think quite a, a bit about and I, I don't think I can draw any like straight line comparison, you know, connecting A and B. But just you know, if you think about the wisdom of of someone who's been through life, who is you know now kind of in their their later years, thinking about legacy, thinking about you know things that that matter the most as you get towards the end of your life, and then like having that as like your direct influence when you're a teenager, right? And like that's that's your parent. Again, I think there are some things that I I missed from that meaning, like I never knew my dad when he was in the prime of his career, if you will, or if he was, you know, when he was really thinking about like the future and building something out. But I think it created a, a more of an interesting dynamic that like it's this perspective of someone who has experienced of the majority of their life already and you know how they would influence, you know, their children as a parent. So Mm-hmm. I, again, not not any strong, you know, conclusions, but I think it was it it definitely shaped my life in a number of interesting ways. Actually, I should have that conversation with my siblings at some point. I don't think we've ever really talked about that. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. And and you said your siblings were were how much uh, older? What was this age spread there? Yep. So my my brother's the oldest. Um, so I, we actually have an older half sister. My father was married uh, once mm-hmm. once before. But if I think about the the children of of my Parents, uh, there are seven of us. My brother's the oldest; he's eight years older than me. And then I have a sister who I think is five or six, uh, no, seven years younger than me. 
Mm-hmm. So my dad, my dad actually had his last child when he was like 60 years old. So mm-hmm. I don't know how old you are, Brett, but like mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you got yeah. a lot of a uh, lot of opportunity ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, my I, I I was actually the opposite. My first child was born was I was when I was 24, and yeah. uh, by the time I'm 50, they'll all be out of the house. So um, I don't plan to repeat that. Um, <laughs> but that's what it would be like. It's, it's yeah, just that's getting started so it, at that stage. Exactly. That's that's exactly how how my wife and I are. So it is. It's really an interesting dynamic. That but again, I can't you know draw any strong conclusion, but I know it's had a big influence. Yeah, and and just curious, you know, what the dynamic was like with your siblings. You know, kind of having the experience of having siblings that are significantly older and significantly younger. You know, what it, that what if any impact. Did that have, or what was that experience like? Yeah, so it went uh, my brother, and then three sisters, and then myself, and two younger sisters. So five girls and two boys. And I was, and my brother and I have a, a great relationship, but he was eight years older, right? So as the as the two only two boys, you know, he it wasn't like he was two years older and we could hang out. You know, he's already graduated high school and in college when I'm in in middle school. With with that said, you know, it, I would say growing up. Surrounded by sisters, I think actually was super helpful in understanding and being able to have great relationships with females, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Whether it's my wife, my sisters, or just in generally setting, there, there's a, a lot to learn uh, when when you know you're surrounded on all sides by sisters. Definitely, <laughs> and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll leave that right there. <laughs> sure. And, and and do you remember at the time while this was happening? Having any sort of sense as to uh, kind of the fact that your father was older and and that maybe that was different than your friends or you know kind of this wisdom that you spoke about you know the maturity to, what was the actual experience like for you as a kid the The actual experience was just more awkward right mm. I, I think the appreciation has come for it now that I'm an adult. Um, and uh-huh. as I've grown older myself, uh, as as a kid, it was just like basically with my buddies, my dad is the age of their grandpa. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. how, how do you like? It, and at the end of the day, like it wasn't that that big of a deal. And and you know, in some instances, people thought it was cool, but that was it was more awkwardness in that that season of my life versus like really understanding the the wisdom and the benefits that came from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more as we fast forward. The city council thing. I mean, you mentioned that you were in a lot of community focused clubs and student government. When does the idea that you're going to run for a city council position in, in high school? You know, I, I mean, I don't know of anyone who's ever done that. I'm not sure, you know, kind of how rare it is. It sounds, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it's pretty rare. Um, <laughs> where does that come from? How does that come in? How's that something that you even feel like you've got the confidence to really consider? Tell me, tell me about that experience. Yeah. So the actual kind of the events that led up to making the decision, the the driving factor was in the. Uh, fall of my senior year in high school, I did an internship uh, at the Logan County Chamber of Commerce uh, with the president, uh, directly working with the president of Logan County Chamber for about uh, eight weeks or so. 
And his name was Ed Wallace, wonderful, wonderful man. And during that time, so I was, I was president of Key Club. I'd run for student government, didn't get it my senior year, uh, but was already kind of engaged in community service. And I was very uh, politically focused, if that makes sense. So kind of just a, a political junkie at that stage as well. So through the course of this internship, basically, and, and I edited like, I don't know why he thought of this, but like he saw that this opportunity was coming up and started to encourage me, like he should think about this. Because we started talking about like community change. Like if you if you were in charge, if you could lead the city, you know, how would you change things? And 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 it was just a really great season of mentorship in my life that I'll always remember and forever be grateful for. But it was like, I think what was implanted was this sense that like if you feel like you have an idea and you have a voice, even though like it may be against conventional wisdom or other people may think that you shouldn't, you know, have a voice or have an idea, but if you believe you do, then you should at least step up to the plate and be willing to to put it out there. So he, he really kind of is the one that started to like plant those seeds. Um, And my memory may be a little bit foggy now, but I, I think it was a, like, the so an interesting point here. I ran as a Democrat in mm-hmm. in Logan County, Ohio. So Logan County, Ohio is very Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a an at large seat, um, so it was a citywide seat, and there were three Republican incumbents. And basically, the Democratic Party wanted to put up a slate to to oppose the the three incumbents. And at that point, I didn't really know my politics, especially on a local level. Where I think party politics matter a lot less on on a local level, frankly. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll run as a Democrat. So uh, I connected with a couple of people in the Democratic Party, and they're like, yeah, let's let's do it. And so the Democratic <laughs> Party ended up putting. I'm like three- partly like, sorry, I'm partly like chuckling because I'm wondering, did they just not have anybody else who felt like <laughs> this was going to be worth their time? <laughs> they're like, uh, you're willing to do sure. it, high school kid? Sure, you know. <laughs> there, there may, there may have been some of that. I'll, I'll give you that for sure. Um, so, um, and, and I think the, the, so in that, I was already accepted into the scholars program at Ohio state in Columbus and had like picked out, like I, I, the, the course was already set. So it wasn't that I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Actually, the path was already set and I had to make a decision to not do what I was planning to do and do something very different. And the last straw, if you will, and that whole experience was my mom. I mean, she's, you know, she, uh, again, growing up, my my mother was primarily a um, uh, stay-at-home mom, you know, having seven kids. She was an educator before that. She was a teacher. But something I found out actually about my mom, you know, as I've gotten older, she's incredibly creative and is like, you know, she's now 70 and is already, is still like writing books and writing and kind of pursuing this, this dream that she has. Um, and she's probably a lot more entrepreneurially wired uh, than than what she thinks she is. Um, but she basically said, like, do it, go for it. We'll support you. Like, we can figure everything else out, but just go for it. And uh, and so I did. Now, interestingly, I, I think I had to file it was like in January, I believe, where I had to file for my candidacy for the primary that was in May. And I uh, was only 17 at the time. So there was actually this question of whether or not a 17-year-old can file uh, for an office, to, to run for an office. And I was actually only 17 during the primary. I didn't turn 18 until July of that year. 
So can a 17-year-old be on a primary ballot was the fundamental question. And that actually went all the way up to uh, Ken Blackwell, who was secretary of the state at the time. And the decision back was because I was going to be 18 by the general election uh, by November, then I could be on the, the primary ballot as a 17-year-old. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that by itself, this says how rare this is, right? Like people didn't even know the answer to that because yeah. they probably never had been asked before. And yep. and I'm actually, you know, kind of all kidding aside about, you know, the they didn't have anybody. There, there does seem to be, you know, something that really suggests uh, a tremendous amount of courage and or just kind of like, innocence. I'm not sure, you know, what you would call it, but like, you know, there probably was a lot of like seasoned politicians that, you know, for many years said a Democrat could never win in that, you know, and and therefore, you know, they run unopposed. I mean, you see this in, in, you know, city politics a lot, you know, even, even at, you know, the, the congressional level where, you know, people don't feel certain seats can ever be flipped, and we're starting to see that. But at yep. that time, to maybe your 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 youth, you know, your kind of like conditioning hadn't been changed yet. Yours was really one that was wired towards like, why not me? Let's try it. Let's you know follow you know as you said that voice and the idea. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and quite frankly, Brett, as I get older, that's I'm trying to hold on to that as much as I can. And and still doing that, like literally with, you know, Zell Capital and other things is like, why not? <laughs> like, let's, if, if you see a problem, right? And this is where, this is why, like, I really encourage, you know, youth entrepreneurship, young people getting involved. Like, it, 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 there, there's a discomfort, it's friction, like to get out there and do this, but go for it. Like the quicker you can get yourself into a cycle, especially if you feel like you're wired to kind of do something different, the fastest you, the quickest you can get into that cycle of just like taking on a problem and say like, no, I'm just going to try and figure it out, the better. Because in as much as like I'm focused on business now and, and entrepreneurship, the cycle of like the mental models, the mental approach, the the friction, the discomfort of like doing something different. It's it's the same regardless of what you're trying to do in terms of like going against the stream. So I'm I'm all for like young people just doing some just starting, just get out there and, and experience it and respond to it and, and grow. You'll fail a lot, like you'll hit walls left and right, but it's a it's a fun journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we I mean, one of the fun parts about this podcast for me is just kind of seeing how the dots connect and um, you know trying to pull that all together in a story that's somebody's life and and then you know hopefully uh, allowing the audience to see themselves in that story and you know already I can see that you know you've got this small town um, and you've got um, this kind of uh, experience with your father, you know, having been, you know, more seasoned and older and, and then, you know, this mentorship and, and all of that, along with the support of your mother, you know, really makes perfect sense as to why you would be that somebody that would do something like that. Uh, you know, is, in, in hindsight, is that how you see it? Yeah. And, and it's, it's like, uh, it's, 
I, I feel like I'm building that narrative now over time again as I get older and try to think back to the time. I think that, you know, definitely influences towards that. And just a wiring, you know, it's a, I'm actually a super competitive person. This is, this is something that I don't know if a lot of people truly understand. Uh, you, you may if you work with me every day because I do also like to be nice. Like I, I want to like build great relationships and, and, and just have fun if we're going to do something together. But if you put me in a sporting event, I literally want to win at all costs. <laughs> like if, if, the, if, the, if the time to, from like start to winning um, is compressed, like let's say in a basketball game, uber competitive. And you know, the nice thing about like building businesses is you've got a little bit of a longer timeline. Like the journey for startups is, is quite a bit longer. But there's this competitive edge I have. And, and it's probably... I don't know, maybe because I'm, you know, was in the middle of, of seven kids. Uh, but certainly my childhood had, had an influence on that, I'm sure, as well. But, you know, you pull all those together, like the willingness to make kind of different choices, a competitiveness to win. And like what I had to learn, what I had to develop was then when you lose, how to effectively process that and turn all of the circumstances of a loss around into strength. For the next game, if you will, and like that for me is the probably the piece that I've had to work on developing. That that I think a lot of people, you know, you hit the wall, you have an outcome that you don't like, you lose something, and even if you're competitive, it, it hurts deeper. So like, how do you turn that pain, that loss, into strength for the next time? And that's been mm-hmm. a big part of the last 15 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's really an important thing to highlight. Uh, but all of that, really, but kind of the first part. Uh, reminds me of Gina Wickman, uh, who you use EOS with your right, and so um, Gina's a friend of mine, and his latest venture is called Leap, which is um, really about entrepreneurship and making that entrepreneurial leap. And he does a lot of work with kids and and students and young people. It's it's for everybody, uh, including an analysis that really has you asking. Questions, completing a questionnaire that that in, in with his methodology, he believes you can determine just based on these questions if somebody is wired to be an entrepreneur or not. That it is definitely a wiring. So you know, I'm more of the belief that it's both. You know that that there are people that are wired, and also then kind of your conditioning, your kind of atmosphere conditions that are around you. That combination really determines whether or not you know you can be successful. Um, including, I, I'm a I'm a huge believer, and this is becoming more and more clear to me that having the support system to wrap the uncertainty and to be able to step into the fear and the potential, you know, quote, failures, right? You, you've kind of learned that these are learning experiences for you, but just getting to that point can be very hard if you don't have the proper support system around you. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I think, and, and, it's, and we, I think we talked about like the value of mentorship, the value of having people with a support system around you who you can learn from, who can speak into your life when you're in, you know, both the high points and, and the low points. And, and that can be, you know, people that you directly know and have relationship with. 
a huge part of that also is the content that you consume from great minds that have lived in the past or that currently live today. And, and what I mean by that is one, probably the most interesting mental model that I've developed in my life right now that helps me in, in that particular case is the concept of being anti-fragile. So Nicholas Nassim Tlaib um, wrote The Black Swan. He's written several books. And one of his books is anti-fragile. And it's all around this concept of systems that when they're exposed to shock or chaos or pain or stress, not only can withstand those, those external events, but those external events actually make you stronger. So you're not so the definition of fragile is those external events would crush you, they would break you, they destroy you. Most people would define anti-fragile as, oh, I can withstand that. But, but really what anti-fragile means is that with those stresses and the, that chaos and shock, you actually get stronger. And, and he writes the book in the context of systems that exist in our world. For me, the biggest impact has been in my own mind, right? Between my ears and a mental model. Where and, and this is one of the, the lessons I or you know thoughts I share with young people and entrepreneurs is we have to realize like in this journey of entrepreneurship there are continuous challenges problems that you're going to deal with on a daily basis like it is what it is it's just not an easy journey to take but you must understand that everything that exists in this journey the good the bad the craziness the shocks the stresses everything that exists in this journey is here to serve you as you are pursuing your dream. So it's not, they're not liabilities. Everything is an asset. Like the stress, the, the fact that you are running out of money and you have to figure out how to like raise or you're going to go out of business. Like that event, that moment is there to serve you in the pursuit of your dream. And then you say, and then you ask me, okay, like, so what happens if, if you run out of money and you have to shut down your business, right? And that's where experience, that's the first two tech companies I started, I had to shut down. And it was like the most painful period of my life, the season of my life, because I went into it with confidence, of course, like, yeah, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, we'll raise capital. And then you like face the end like that you never want to face as a business person where I have to literally close the business, lay people off and just figure out how to like manage through this. But what I've learned is that view that like that was there to serve me in the pursuit of my dream. Like the lessons that I've learned from those events, the depth of, of experience and gratitude and like understanding when you get close to the edge, the options that you have as a business person to not freak out and like stay calm. All of that has helped me through the Nikola Labs journey. It's helping me in the Zell Capital journey. Like all of those things, the good and the bad of my past are currently serving me right now as I pursue my dream. Yeah, no question. And, and I love that. And that's, you know, again, kind of a big part of why I do this podcast is so that people can really see how all of these events do serve us. That is kind of one of my most deeply held beliefs that, you know, everything is there to serve us and then ultimately to serve other people. So let, let's put a little bow on the uh, city council experience. Tell me kind of how that unfolded. Yep. So, Ran, uh, so made it into the, it wasn't a contested primary, so three Democrats. So I, I made it onto the ballot for the general election. And uh, through the summer, and it was the summer of 2001, which was interesting just with, with September 11th. And, you know, I ran a citywide campaign. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, but what I did 
know and and actually still have record of it today is that the tagline for uh, my campaign was a voice for the future. And so like I, at the Logan County Fair, I was giving out poems, you know, Willsville City Council 2001, and then on the other side of Voice for the Future. And I actually still ask myself, am I that today, right? Like it's something I still hold today. And I think about it like, are you today still a voice for the future? Are you thinking about what's next? Like, or are you settling in on life as it is and the status quo as it is, and you're just going to check out and call it good? So anyways, went through the summer, um, got to the uh, election, and there were six people running for three spots, three Republicans and incumbents, and then three Democrats. And I ended up coming in fourth. And I lost only by a little over then, uh, 100 votes. So I, I didn't make this seat, but I think it was impressive enough that it got on a bunch of people's radar in terms of like, all right, he didn't just like try to do this thing in the spring and then didn't show up for, for the fall election. Um, I really, really tried and, and tried hard. And what that led to was actually a couple of opportunities that, that opened up. I, I don't know if you, you know this or not, but I actually hosted a weekly radio station or radio program in Bell Fountain for 10 years from January 2002 or January, February 2002 through 2012. Um, and it was like a, a weekly radio program all around like current events, local issues, politics. I was able to interview congressmen and state reps and state senators. And it was really, really fun. So that was an experience that directly came out of running for city council. Um, I ended up, I was president of Key Club in high school. I ended up being involved in Kiwanis and was president of the Kiwanis Club in Bell Fountain. And I think it was like 19 or 20 at the time. Um, so there was just this like, it was the, like I lost the election, right? But like the doors that that opened up from taking the risk and, and taking the leap were awesome. Like you couldn't even like, it was like, oh, people were like, oh, yeah, you lost, whatever. But still, I want you to do this, this, and this, right? Um, and and that's, that was kind of the first lesson of like, by putting yourself out there and taking risk and taking that, that jump, win, lose, or draw, you're likely going to have doors that open up after. It's like Boy, fa- yeah. failing, failing forward, I think, is what, what that term is called, right? It's yeah, that, that, that is. And it really is a great uh, thing to highlight because... I don't think that even as I sit here today, that that is the thought that comes to front of mind as you start to enter into something where failure is an option. You know, I've had the experience of failing forward. I hold the belief that nothing is wrong ever, right? And and it's because of that, you know, uh, concept, which is that there's always something that you can learn something that opens up. In fact, you know, Amy Acton was the commencement speaker at my son's high school graduation recently. And, you know, that was a big part of her speech is about the hero's journey and that, you know, nothing's ever wrong. You're never off track and you, you're doing this work forever. You're constantly learning. So I think it's really a great thing to highlight because people forget that. It's more of a hindsight thing. Oh, well, it opened this and that. You know, it learned and led me here. But stepping into it, knowing that is is a very different story. And it's I think most people look at failure as a negative word, right? Where I look at failure very much as a neutral word. It has it's like good and bad. And so think about weightlifting, right? Like in weightlifting, you want to get 
to muscle failure. Like your whole point <laughs> is to work and your and exercise a muscle, let's say it's your your biceps, and work it to failure. Why? And, and is it talk about failure in the negative context of that stage? No. Um, it's it's working to failure, which is a neutral statement of, of a neutral expression of the word. And you want to get it to failure because that is the platform for growth. It is only when you you stress your muscle and get it to that that point of of failure that the rips and the tears, if you will, on that muscle, it provides the platform for growth. Now you need nutrition, you need a lot of other things to help you on that journey. But for me, failure is not a negative word. And 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 I need to come up with a different word to use other than failure, maybe, but it's like it is this like beautiful part of the journey. And it's not just the big failures and the outcomes. It's that, you know, like in, as a businessman, how many you're continuously experimenting on things, right? Trying something else, you know, it could be a little decision you make today and like, oh, it doesn't work. It, it, it quote unquote failed. But like you learn from it and you applied it to, you know, the doing better the next time. So for me, I just, I don't view the word failure as, as something that's negative. I view it, actually, I view it as an asset, not a, not a liability or negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, You've got some pretty well-documented successes and I'd like to talk about them, but maybe you can just highlight uh, for a minute the failures you know, that you did learn from. You mentioned you had a couple startups that didn't work. So talk a little bit about kind of those failures for people to hear because I know people that have had startup failure. And this is actually one of the things you and I have talked about this that that I'm really deeply moved to try to be a part of the solution, which is not letting eight out of 10 fail or nine out of 10, whatever the numbers are today, and and ruin a bunch of entrepreneurs who take on the belief that they are failures or they're not meant to be in a startup. Um, you know, Talk a little bit about the failures you've had that you powered through to ultimately have the successes you've had. Yep. So I, I started my first business in in real estate and so investing in properties up in Logan County primarily. And when my wife and I got married, my wife had some assets and it gave us between kind of what I'd already um, started doing and you know the asset base able to start growing a pretty aggressive real estate investment business. Um and then on that kind of journey, and that was good. I, I cut my teeth on that business a lot, but basically every deal that I got into was was a good deal, it was a good purchase. There are a couple of things I would would do differently for sure, but in terms of like buying, doing the the good deal in real estate, like it was it was pretty successful. So then I started branching out. And I started like I had this kind of evolution as an entrepreneur towards like being interested in and figuring out how to solve big problems in the world and then leveraging technology to get there. So started really kind of un- reading, you know, everything I could about entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and venture capital and, you know, tech entrepreneurship. And in around like 2012, I, I was at a conference um, and in Washington, DC, and I had the first idea for uh, a tech startup. Actually, it was at the end of 2011. And I'm like, all right, I've got my first idea. Um, and, and I'm like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. I'm going to start a, a tech company. And, you know, I basically 99% of my time was up in, in Belfont, Ohio, um, in terms of professionally. 
And as I got into 2012, I was like, all right, I need to, you know, if I'm going to build a tech company, I need to go to a big city and really start to build relationships because there's got to be a ton of venture capital there. And that's why I started really coming down to Columbus and, and building a network. And, you know, one of the walls that I hit that I think probably most entrepreneurs do, especially if you're trying, if you're, if you know you're building a company that needs venture backing or investor backing, a lot of entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, where a lot of the, the vast majority of VC dollars go, you've got this expectation that like you're in Columbus, one of the largest cities in, in the United States, there has to be a robust community of venture capital, right? Like there's got to be a ton of, of capital there. And, and the wall that you hit is that there just isn't. Um, and this is back in like 2012. It's thankfully getting better now. But there's there just wasn't that much risk capital in in the the region at that stage. You know, that was a very rude awakening. And and I had, you know, I had confidence coming in from like what I had built in real estate. And then like, yeah, I'm going to be able to to do this. It's you just raise capital and build out tech and, and get after it. And just unfortunately, like there wasn't really any takers on the investment side. And had I had I known that ahead of time, I probably would have re-architected both of the business models of those two startups to where they didn't rely on significant investor capital to get to you know cash flow. Um, would have just completely structured it differently. Um, and the other mistake that I made, honestly, is I launched the two. I, I'd spread myself out too thin in, in that season of, of my life as well. So those errors compounded on themselves and just got to the point where like couldn't raise capital, got both products to market, and one was actually generating a decent amount of revenue. It just wasn't profitable. And you know, if you're spending a thousand dollars and you're only bringing in you know two hundred fifty dollars a month, um, you know you you run out of you don't have long runway. You run out of capital pretty quickly, and the downside is significant. So. Got to that point. This is like 2013, late 2013, where it was full of plug time, and you know it was the like it was the legitimate you know for weeks on end, just waking up at two, three o'clock in the morning, just pure anxiety attack. I mean, you know, you you put I had a lot on the line, you know, family, my wife, you know, huge trust in me, had you know young children at this stage, you know, reputation, everything that goes into like. When you put yourself out there uh, on the ledge as as an entrepreneur and it doesn't work, like it is a very crappy feeling. <laughs> it just isn't fun. And and you know there were like I leaned on mentors a lot at that stage. One of a, a good friend of mine, his name's Jason Duff. He's done just a ton of of work here. He basically has just revitalized downtown Bell Fountain over the last decade. And you know he he gave me a ton of great advice. Um, my senior pastor at at my church, a ton of great great advice. So I had people who could just really help during that time, but it was still dark. You're not going to avoid the darkness. You're just not. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you manage through it? And then how do you become anti-fragile? That's why that mental model means so much to me today is that like, how do you take that pain and make it a strength? And what I found out was that when the dust settled, yes, there were failures in business. Yes, it was incredibly painful. Yes, there were like, Things that you have to work through, you know, months and years after that, but it it became like I learned so much from it that when I stepped up to the plate with Nikola Labs, which was the next company I started, 
I was able to execute day one on such a different level. And then like there have been a dozen times at Nikola Labs where we're literally down to like days, if not weeks of, of cash in the bank. And you know, before I was freaking out, like back in, you know, with Huddlewoo and Connect to Home, the first two startups, we got to the end and I'm like nuts, like just completely losing my my stuff, you know, from a, a you know mental perspective. And you know, step up to the plate at, at Nikola Labs. It's like, you know what? No, we've got this. Like I'm I'm comfortable being at the edge. I don't like it. But I can play at the edge and then keep my wits about me as a leader to make sure that we focus on the solution to the problem and get that done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's really a great thing. Um, I, uh, as an investor, have learned that I love founders who have battle scars that have you know done this once or twice or more. Um, I actually see it as a massive, uh, you know, check box when when I see somebody who's learned a ton about what not to do. You know, where others might see those people as failures. Ah, oh, you don't want to bet on them. They've you know you know had this problem, that problem, and there can be some truth to that. But I I, I think that you know when somebody tells me everything they've learned that they now want to apply to the next thing, I, I feel you know pretty good about that. That gets me pretty excited. And so, just you know, tell me for a, a, a minute or two about um, Nikola Labs. You know, you, you take those quote failures, um, you you know, hop back in, which which you know says a lot about you because you've been through those dark times, and yet you know you still have the internal strength, courage, drive to to go right back in. Um, knowing that you've got this learning under your belt, you know what happens. Yep. So, uh, Nicola, first and foremost, um, you know, the dynamic around being able to access capital changed quite a bit. So, I was very fortunate. Some of the founding partners, two of the founding partners at uh, Nicola, is a group called Eco Capital, and they were just getting started and focused on trying to figure out how to scale tech commercialization out of research institutions in the Midwest. And they were able to bring to the table a network of investors that immediately expanded my relationships and my network uh, beyond you know what was just in, in Central Ohio. And that was a really, really important um, dynamic to the, the entire story of, of Nikola Labs. Um, my role was as founding CEO, um, how do we make this a success? And what we started with was uh, technology uh, developed by Dr. Chi Chi Chen at Ohio State that was focused on primarily wireless power transfer. Uh, so getting electricity from point A to point B over distance uh, without wires and kind of doing that in the context of low power electronics. So if there are sensors everywhere in the internet of things, how do we never have to replace batteries on those sensors because they're powered effectively off of you know the equivalent of a Wi-Fi network? Um, very new and nascent technology with no existing market. So the story of Nikola Labs is kind of broken into two chapters. The first chapter is as we were in the early days developing the technology and looking for key applications and key markets where we could create value. It took a very... like It was important to have a very broad approach. So a lot of traveling, a lot of really understanding the status quo in consumer electronics and smart buildings and smart manufacturing. 
and really just looking broad to try to match the value that wireless power could create against the status quo and making sure that you know the value that we could create is significant enough to displace the status quo. Um, with that said, there was this third factor, which actually has become the stranglehold, if you will, on wireless power, which is the regulatory process. Um, so we were trying to work within the constraints of the regulators. And we we finally found in kind of 2017, the company launched officially in October of 14. By kind of mid-2017, we had started to narrow in on the first market that had a lot of promise. And that was in sensor-based condition monitoring for, for manufacturers. Um, really great value add. So if in a manufacturing facility, if you do vibration monitoring on a motor, uh, let's say a critical motor, and you can see that that motor is heading towards failure weeks, if not months ahead of it actually failing, and you can give that heads up to the maintenance team in that facility, and they can go in and fix the problem before it becomes a failure. That is a huge value creation for manufacturers. So we fell in love with that market and we decided that we're going to go from just this kind of wireless power provider to we're going to build out a system. Um, and initially that system included wireless power. We we're integrating it into what we did. And it basically took by the time we launched our first generation and went through really kind of trying to get all the regulatory approval for that. Um, it just the FCC more or less has this um, and stranglehold is a, a a tough word, but for lack of a better word, that's what I'll call it, uh, because it does actually make a lot of sense as to why they're doing what they're doing. But they limit approval for wireless power companies in terms of like how much power you can transmit over distances. So it ended up actually that the fundamental technology that we started the company with several years before didn't even have great like enough value add in that application that we we're focused on to move the needle. But by that time, we had developed a lot of other key technologies around wireless power. So ultra-low power electronic design, really understanding efficiency, uh, efficient energy storage. And we were able to bring to market this beautiful system that's very unique in the marketplace. It's a full offering. So both hardware, software, machine learning. We do installation and service. Um, this system is called Vero. And we, we've delivered that to the market and it is serving a huge market need. We're one of the early leaders in this space. And Nikola is on just this incredible growth journey right now. And it's, it's super exciting to watch the company. Really exciting. And, and what I want to hear you speak a little bit about as we transition to what you're currently doing is how you chose to transition out of uh, Nicola, I mean, you've got something that had raised a lot of capital, got a lot of traction. You were CEO, founder, and you know you decide to go on to something else, sell capital, which you know I want to definitely talk about. But but tell me a little bit about kind of how you saw your role at Nicola and and kind of why you decided to move on to Zell Capital. Now it's it's a great question and and I'll answer it like this so first first and foremost in business I view myself like my primary duty the fundamental thing that matters is being a shareholder of the company so especially if you have partners or if you have outside investors I am first and foremost a shareholder of this company that other people have put their money into 
to be shareholders with me. So being a director of, let's say, a director on the board of directors serves being a shareholder first. Being the CEO or any other type of executive role serves being a shareholder first. So as a shareholder in the company and an executive and on the board of directors, the thing that matters most is to make sure that the right people are in the right seats on this bus as we're going from where we are to the ultimate outcome. And every entrepreneur has to have a level of self-awareness and ask him a fundamental question. Ask himself, him or her, a a fundamental question. And that question is, is if, if you are fortunate enough to start a company and then it begins to experience growth, what that means is that every 10 to 12 months, you're going to be leading a completely new company. And you, you know this, right? As you go from two people to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 100, the entire business changes and the demands change, the, the organizational structure changes, and the type of leadership that is required changes. And so every founding CEO, every founder, in my opinion, needs to really understand whether or not they want to evolve as a leader to to learn what it means to be a leader of a 20-person company or a 100-person company or a 500-person company. And if you're willing to go on that journey, then as a shareholder, like empower the leader to take that journey as long as they want to and they can deliver what it takes to lead at that level. Or are you the type of entrepreneur that like you love a stage of the business? Like you're just really, really good at early stage or really good at growth stage. Um, and for me, that's, that's, I'm the second part. I love the early stages of startups, right? I love getting in and trying to figure out like you got chaos and then how do you create something out of it? Um, and I, and I could probably learn how to be the leader in, in a growth stage. But just for me, it was like, it was a super easy decision, which is like, I want to find someone who would just be absolutely better than me. The key though is I wanted it to be my decision. And and that's the the conflict that if you're not thinking about that as a founder, like sooner or sooner rather than later, like that intersection is going to happen, which you're not evolving as the leader that is needed for this company. And you've got other directors and other shareholders and they're seeing that, then we're then that's where these tough conversations happen. And and that's where you see entrepreneurs or CEOs getting picked out. Um, I kind of had a sense like this is the direction that, that I wanted to go. So I'm going to work on finding who I believe is the best person in this region that can come in and be the scale-up CEO. And that was Brian Graham. Um, and he came on first as COO in 2018 and pre- then president and COO uh, in 19. And then at the end of last year, uh, he became CEO. Now, with that said, I want to be really explicit. I'm still involved in Nikola Labs. I'm, I'm chairman of, of the board. And I work... My role now is just shifted to working with Brian and the team just to make sure that like they have everything that they need to be successful. So we've got a great board of directors, we've got a great base of of shareholders, and we're all there to empower that leadership team to take this this all the way. So it's it's a so I'm still it, I haven't you know walked away from from Nikola Labs. My role has fundamentally shifted, and in that fundamental shift. I'm no longer responsible for the day-to-day operations, which created the time capacity for Zell Capital. Yeah, I think you know you're highlighting you know something that's really important for entrepreneurs and founders to hear, which is that you know you 
have these two paths that you outlined. You know, one is to learn the role and to keep learning the role as the role changes and, you know, kind of grow within it. Or the other is to be self-aware enough to say, this is the part I really like and that I'm really good at. And after that part's done, you know, I need to move on to something else. But that said, you know, as the chairman of the board, and, you know, I think this is a good transition to Zell Capital, you have learned how to wear a lot of hats, right? Mm-hmm. You can provide value as a chairman to a board, to a CEO, to a senior leadership team, even though you're not the one doing the heavy lifting, right? It's not Absolutely. just the, you're not just on the start. You can be more in the visionary seat at the high level and still be super value additive. And the reason I think that's a good transition to Zell Capital is, as you and I have talked, um, you know, whether it be mentorship or coaching or other modalities of support around entrepreneurs, you know, that's a big part of what you're doing now with Zell Capital. So why don't you talk a little bit about Zell Capital and 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 you know share with the audience, you know, what you're doing. Yeah. And and you hit the nail on the head, right? In terms of like in in a leadership role and that role for Nicholas as chairman, like there's still the delivery of value that moves the needle. It's just in its appropriate place based on you know skill sets and, and capabilities. So what what I've transitioned to with with Dell Capital is and and it's a it's something I've been really thinking about for like a decade now. And it it's a it's a big dream. And and what it is is if you look at the world of Private markets. Um, so everyone's familiar with you know the stock market and bonds and treasuries. Like there's this world of public markets where any investor can get in and, and invest in day in and day out, right? And all you know if you've got an investment advisor, that's where probably the vast majority of their allocation of capital is focused on. But there's this like whole other world that exists, and it's called private markets. And there you'll find venture capital. You'll find angel investing. You'll find private equity investing, private debt. There's there's basically this entire world that is private markets that historically have only been open to what is defined as accredited investors. And fundamentally, to be an accredited investor, it's a wealth test. So um, there's more than this, but in essence, you either have to make two hundred thousand dollars a year for the last two years, or you have to be worth a million dollars. Outside of the primary, the value of your primary residence, in order to be defined as an accredited investor. And again, there are a few other you know, definitions that go into that, but in essence, it's a wealth test. And what the the, the kind of regulations, the SEC, the SEC's approach to the private markets has been that a person who is accredited should at least have the understanding of the wherewithal to make a risk appropriate decision for private market investing because. One of the key elements of investing in private markets is there is no liquidity generally. Meaning, if I buy a share of a startup company, I can't go and sell that share tomorrow or next month. It's like seven to ten years. <laughs> so it, you can't you can't get in and out of private market investments like you can public market investments. So accreditation laws have existed to basically be this kind of filter. Now. And 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 you can see how that made sense and why that made sense over time. But we're we're at a new phase now, in, in my opinion. We're at the beginning of this new 
kind of transition to shift where um, I believe fundamentally private market investment opportunities are going to open to everybody through leveraging technology, through just the kind of evolving regulatory reality of things. Um, and I would say just the general knowledge of all of investors, everyday investors, like there is a lot of inf- like you can learn everything that you want to about you know private equity and venture capital investing just by spending you know hours on on the internet. So the ability to be educated about the asset class is readily available. So what we want to do as Al Capital is we actually want to lead a lot of this transition. And and what we have done is we recently received effectiveness or were, de- were declared effective by the SEC for a new type of venture capital fund. And what this fund is, is it's basically a hybrid between a 40 Act registered, 1940 Investment Company Act registered fund. So think of funds like mutual funds or exchange traded funds or you know interval funds. So funds that have regulatory requirements and burdens with them Combine that with a venture capital investment strategy. And when you throw those two worlds together, the output is this fund, uh, new fund class that we have created, which is called an access fund. And with an access fund, what makes it unique is that um, because it's registered with the SEC and subject to ongoing reporting and disclosure, the investment opportunity for the fund is open to all investors. So not just accredited investors, but non-accredited investor. Basically, any U.S. citizen 18 or older is qualified to invest in Zelle Capital. So, and we set the minimum investment at $1,000 to make it what I believe is, is highly accessible from a risk profile perspective. So anyone, any U.S. adult can invest in Zelle Capital. So they can put money into the fund. And what the fund does is we are going out and we are going to invest in early stage startups. We will be seed and Series A investors, meaning that we are going to invest in tech and tech-enabled companies when they're just getting started. So these are private, very young, very um, nascent companies that traditional venture capitalists invest in. And that's what we are going to be investing in as well. So the investment opportunity is open to everyone. Uh, and the investment strategy is early stage venture capital, and that is likely the first fund of its kind to be launched in the United States. Yeah, you know, and just kind of like as we start to wrap up, and and you know, uh, for me, I'm just sitting here listening to this, and in full disclosure, you know, you and I have had some of this conversation before. I'm invested in the fund. Um, yep. You know, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I really can see though how all these dots connect. You know, you being kind of a leader in whatever it is that you do, and that being kind of your wiring and your life experience, and you know, um, this new class of um, an investment vehicle, a fund, um, is is not that different than being seventeen and being the a new class of politician. You know, yeah. um, this is kind of. And then, you know, you take the failures that you described, including the learning about capital and and how, you know, that um, world uh, existed and 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 then, you know, kind of your community minded focus. I mean, the 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 non-accredited investor thing is a real game changer. 
I mean, I, I really believe that, and I read this recently, I don't know if it was Naval or somebody said something about kind of, um, you know, this, the, the, the new internet or the new economy is really about democratization and access. And, um, and, and so giving people access, uh, access fund is, you know, the, is, is the right language because that's really what you're doing. You're giving people yep. access to wealth creation that in the past only the wealthiest people had access to. That's pretty pioneering. It's pretty new. It's pretty, um, you know, I don't know, ballsy. I mean, and it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, that that would be what you would be doing. Uh, I, Brad, I don't think I've technically been qualified to do anything that I've done in my adult life. <laughs> yeah. So, but like, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people struggle with because that's why I get the question like, why are you like, why are you qualified to launch a fund? I'm like, I don't know. Why was I qualified to run for city council when I was 17? Right. And, and I think the barrier that a lot of us hit is what's called imposter syndrome. Like, I don't fit, I don't belong. Like, why am I here? That's okay. Like, it's part of the journey. Like, Figure it out, solve the problem, and get after it. And people like do it, execute well, and people will believe in you and support you. It'll happen. Yeah, yeah. And Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach, who I'm a big fan of, says you know that it's about capabilities, not credentials. And yeah. I actually think what qualifications you lack are actually the exact reason why you're the right person to be doing this. That that that's true in politics too. I mean. Part of our problem is that we have people that are so conditioned politically based on their, you know, environment and that entire system. And the same is true in venture capital. There's a bit of a um, a problem in venture that you know there's only really the most credentialed people doing it. And so they just keep doing it the same way, which, you know, doesn't really actually work as well as they'd like to think if you're kind of just measuring by uh, pure dollars, then okay, fine. But what about the bodies that are getting left behind, you know, and, and the people that are not included in this process, you know, to me, that's a pretty massive problem that you're, you're aiming to solve here. Yeah, it, you, I, we could spend an hour talking about just that, uh, but absolutely. And and a good thing for like entrepreneurs to think about is you're going to displace the status quo of an industry. You've got the ability to rewrite the rules, and it's never easy. It's actually super hard to do. But like, if you could rewrite the rules of an industry, what would you write? And and when we when we're thinking about the access fund and early stage investing. There are a lot of great aspects and attributes about venture capital, um, but there are elements of the status quo that just frankly are underserving so many people, both on the investor side and the, the recipients of venture capital, and then forcing them into this power law model where you have to like go all out at all costs. And like if it doesn't work, then there's just carnage. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. that's good and it's good in some investments but there i think a rule rule new rule to be written is like how do you think about portfolio construction differently in in early stage investing couldn't agree more well well i'm a big fan of what you're doing and uh it's great to have you on the podcast today any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners no i just i want to thank you brett thank you for your support i mean the conversations we've had over years um I, it means so much to me um you're a pioneer in what you do and uh 
Like it's, it's just awesome, man. So keep on keeping on and uh, thanks for, for this opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to have you. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm cheering you on. So we'll, we'll keep, keep the good conversations going. Love it. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.